What does being a scholar mean to you? This is a question that we've been thinking through with our research partners at the University of British Columbia. And in this episode, we're going to share our ongoing conversations with them about this question and others relating to the emerging experience of PhDs, um, an experience that captures a lot of themes about the future of work and in particular, what we mean when we talk about communities of practice. As you'll hear, we're thinking about scholarship, not necessarily specific to a discipline or a department, but as a process, a practice, and a form of labor. These are questions that are massively important to HICMA, where we're thinking about what it means to build a community of practice. Uh, so with that, I'm Erica Makalak, the founder of HICMA, and you are listening to the HICMA Collective Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Higma Collective Podcast. I'm delighted to be here with our research partners at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it to them to say a little bit about themselves. But Jillian Code, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about what this project is and why we're all here? Sure. Thank you, Erica. Absolutely delighted to be here and to be partnering with you on this work. My name is Dr. Jillian Code. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. And we came together to really explore uh, what it means to have a PhD, what it means to be a scholar. But beyond that, where um, people with PhDs or with doctoral degrees um, end up outside of the academy, why they, why they chose that direction. Um, and really to consider uh, professional agency and what that means in the context uh, outside of the academy. Nice. Um, Andy Webb, will you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in the project? Hi, my name is Andrea Webb. And I am an associate professor of teaching um, in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. Um, and my real interest in this is how we engage in teaching and learning in higher education. Um, and that's the focus of, of both my research and, and my participation in this project. Kieran Ford, how about you? Hi, my name is Kieran Ford. I'm a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Education at UBC. I'm a research assistant on this project and Dr. Code is my mentor and advisor. Nice, thank you, Kieran. And how about you, Zahira? Hi, uh, I'm Zahira. I'm a current MA student, uh, first year student with under the supervision of uh, Dr. Code as well. And I, I'm doing my uh, MA in Media and Technology Studies education. Yeah, I guess for me, it's thinking about what it means to be a scholar and where I see myself within the academy and whether if I consider, uh, you know, pursuing a PhD in the future, it's, it's really important to understand the opportunities that lie you know, at the at the other end, and whether I am able to um, see myself within that realm in the first place. So I think this work is really uh, will shed some light on that, and whether on my own personal experience of what it means uh, for me to pursue those kind of opportunities in the future. I love that, Zahra, and you beat me to the punch. So I want to ask each of you while we're here to answer that question. So Zahra went first. Um, how about you, Andy? Um, complete the sentence. Being a scholar to me means? Being a scholar to me means applying a 
a rigorous, um, a thoughtful, an appropriate um, method and methodology to questions and curiosities. Um, I think that being a scholar is actually a very broad pursuit and, and is actually taken up by lots of people. Um, but the universities have often, or higher education has often made a cachet um, around, around their own work. But I think that lots of people engage in intelligent, uh, rigorous, intellectual pursuits uh, outside of the academy. And to me, being a scholar means bringing that training to bear um, on questions and curiosities that individuals have, um, regardless of the area of interest. I love it. How about you, Jillian? It's a really uh, great question and a great statement. Um, I think it depends on the <laughs> on which mood you're in, uh, on on how you how you answer that question. Um, but at the essence, for me, uh, being a scholar means um, that questions and curiosities like like Andy said, but for me, it's I take that one step further, one step uh, adjacent to that is that that um, inspired curiosities to really think about questions um, that I have about the world, but um, applying a rigor, to investigate those questions, but more importantly, uh, tell a story at the end of it. And, and how, no matter how, what data you've collected, how you've collected that data, there, there is a story to tell. Um, and it's likely a very compelling story, um, even if there is no, you know, it's non-significant in whatever statistical way you're thinking about it, it's still, um, a story. And so I, I, I see myself as, as a storyteller, essentially. Nice. Kieran, how about you? Yeah, being a scholar is a, it's a tricky one. Um, it's always good to say something's a spectrum that way you have a pretty broad field to play with. So I like the spectrum idea. I'm like, as a scholar, uh, I, as a student, I guess I would be a junior scholar. So I guess, um, I'm thinking of the privilege uh, that I've been afforded to be a scholar, and um, that is to sort of be in the academy where I can uh, play gracefully with ideas, where I have the time, the luxury of the time, uh, a lot of it uninterrupted, a lot of it undirected to to explore things that interest me and things that might afford purpose uh, to me in my life and, and meaning in my life. Mm, nice. So Kieran, as the PhD candidate, as the one who's been going through it while we've been working on this for a number of years now, um, what are some of the takeaways from the research that we've done so far that feel most relevant to you? Um, the the need for community, so the blog post I, that I wrote for, for HICMA uh, spoke around the issue of community, I think, which was highlighted very clearly in my uh, early in my PhD um, when COVID um, happened and my cohort um, disappeared. Uh, I had a group of people, my sort of community that I that I studied with, that I had classes with in a particular room, in a particular setting. And I met these people and we had a, a forum. We had a sort of traditional 
physical place where these things happened. And when that physical place was replaced uh, by by what we're doing here, where we all got put into our little boxes, and um, things changed. And and some of the some of my my, my cohort I haven't seen since. Um, and it was it was quite the struggle. So what I've taken away from what we've been looking at is that need for community um, and the need to to feel connected to not just your subject, but to, to feel connected with others, um, because it's definitely something you can't do alone. I think there's a saying that, you know, to everyone can be miserable by themselves, but to appreciate happiness, you have to have company or something like mm -hmm. that. I think to be a scholar uh, is not a solitary exercise, certainly when we're writing a lot of the time, but everything that leads to the writing is part of community. And so it's like the community funnels into that. And, and then, yeah, the community is, is, is the funnel that, that distills and, and guides and, and puts a point in what we're trying to do. Nice. What is this study all about, Andy? Uh, well, I can talk a little bit about how we have engaged in the study. Um, essentially, based on our interests in looking at how people have moved beyond the academy and what, what their interests are, um, we sort of pursued two separate avenues. Um, I think that there is um, a real interest in looking at recent graduates, and there is some some studies have, that have been done around that. Um, Jillian took this idea of professional agency um, and how people think about um, their activity and did a large scale um, numerical study with them um, and has some amazing, really interesting results in terms of how people understand themselves as being powerful agents um, in their own progress. Um, and on the other side, I interviewed a small group of individuals on what their post-graduation uh, career path was. And so following with appreciative interviews, um, we asked people, what are some of the things that went well in your post-degree process? What are the things that helped you um, as you engaged in that process? Nice. So, Andy, what is an appreciative interview? Um, an appreciative interview is essentially a narrative type of interview where they tell me a story of when things went well, um, rather than focus on a stitch and bitch kind of situation, um, or rather than focus on an unfortunate series of events that you know have led them to leave the academy, we tried to focus on what were some of the positive takeaways? What are the opportunities? What are some of the things that went well that we could build upon um, in order to learn something about how to support people going forward? Within the social sciences and humanities, we're so well-trained critique and to find the holes. Um, it's nice to put that perspective not only on the storytelling of of what has happened in our lives um, once we've once we left the academy, but to think about how research can generate positive things. Um, Jillian, how would you respond to that? 
Um, I think Andy did a great job. And uh, I think it also speaks to uh, the way in which we uh, we approached this project is, uh, with a distinct um, mixed methodology, because we really felt very strongly that um, there was no one method that was going to tell the whole story. Having lived through much of these, these experiences, positive, negative, and everything in between ourselves, how, um, how we came together to, to tell these stories um, was, was really important. And I think the at the essence of it was that, um, you know, there, there's some shocking stats out of the UK, um, you know, saying that only 50% of social sciences and 45% of arts and humanities PhD holders are in academic roles. And, and so what about everyone else, you know? And so, there was, we really felt that there was a, a significant need to educate and empower PhDs and postdocs um, about their, how to, how to develop their professional agency. Um, and so for, from my side of the project, and we talk about, you know, uh, her side and my side and Andy is very qualitative and I'm somewhat, uh, somewhat more quantitative. And so, um, uh, which was a perfect pairing in my mind, you know, really just, having this focus around professional agency and how people make choices and act on the, on, on those choices. And as adults, how, you know, um, how you, the, the meaning that you make out of your career, um, was, was really, really, uh, important. Um, and Kieran is exactly right. You know, what the data is telling us, I know you're probably going to ask about the data specifically a little bit later, but even, um, as we theoretically linked, um, and understood that with professional agency, um, we need a community of practice. And so, so those two elements really did, did come together. And I think we, we can say, um, in both data sets with the, with the qual uh, quanti uh, qualitative and the quantitative that that really did come through. Nice. Okay, let's break it down a little bit. Jillian, what does agency mean in this context? Um, that's a great question. And agency, uh, the the one of the def there's many definitions of agency, and they usually surround the idea of one's ability um, or will and skill in to act um, in certain, in given the constraints around them. And so, you know, so the capability that individuals have to make choices and act on those choices in a way that makes a difference in their lives and that, and that in difference in, in their, in their life is really important from the, uh, when we're looking at it from the professional agency side, um, with respect to PhD, uh, recent grads, postdocs, um, we're thinking about, I think, what comes into play is the meaning um, that individuals have out of their their current uh, their current roles, the current roles that 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 they're in, that they find themselves that they may find themselves in. That's right, or that they chose. And so those two very those two intentionalities are very very different. And I think um, coming into this project, we're thinking about professional agency. Um, when we're training or training or educating and we're welcoming people into graduate programs, um, what has happened over the many, many years is that we are telling these people, um, our grads that, um, us included, that the only way for you is to be a professor. 
um, a teaching professor, a research stream professor, but in the professoriate in some way. And um, that we know, uh, both Andy and I feel, I guess, being younger scholars, um, you know, I don't know if, if we can call ourselves that, but hey, um, that that does a huge disservice because there is so many there's there's just so much there. And so what we really wanted to do was get a lay of the land and really find out if if that's, you know, in actual fact. Um, so how much or how little agency people really felt that that they had um, in or that they have in, in the snapshot that we were able to capture. So in the context of this technical work, how do we define agency? So in the process uh, within this context, um, we can really define agency as an, uh, a recent, a, P a PhD graduate, a recent um, doctoral holder, <laughs> um, somebody in the workforce even, that is able to actively ne negotiate um, your identity within the context of the availability or, or perceived lack thereof of opportunity and, and how, you, how you actively engage um, or disengage in that process and how you utilize the community around you to find value in your in what you're pursuing. Nice. Thanks, Jillian. The the reason I'm asking for these technical definitions is one of the things that really inspires me about the work of this project is talking about agency and community and communities of practice, these things that we tend to talk about in these really lofty abstract ways as actual tangible things that we can think about and use to build better systems, to build better experiences, to build better communities. And by breaking down those terms into information that we can work with and real understandings of the roles that these things play in our lives, I think we have a real shot at building better ones. Um, so Andy, to that end, can I ask you, technically, what is a community of practice? So within the academy, there are lots of different definitions in terms of how people take up communities of practice. And, and that really is a term that has been used in the higher education literature for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and a community of practice is often a group of people who come together to support each other as they engage in learning. So the practice being the learning, the community being the group of people. I think that that has become increasingly more complicated, but also interesting as we have started to see the academy become more diverse, um, more interested in interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary conversations. So it's not so much about having a single community that we that we work with and that we investigate. Um, but within this research, I think that it's become really, um, I have become really encouraged by this idea that people have a constellation of communities that they are working with. 
um, and that we have a group of people over here that are supporting their disciplinary learning. And we have a group of people over here that are su supporting their personal and professional um, career kind of learning and growth. And then we may have our personal groups. Um, so the groups outside the academy that we are engaged in thinking with. And some people have talked about um, artistic pursuits that are part of that particular community. And so while originally it was, you know, a group of scholars or interested parties getting together to, to work on a particular problem, I think now we're starting to see in the academy that there are multiple different groups of people that we engage with. And so no longer is it about a community of practice, but I think we have to talk about multiple communities. And I, I'm using this idea of a constellation um, because I also think that we have different arm's length engagement with some of those communities. So some communities we are deeply embedded with, and these become the foundation and the rock um, that we are connected to and how we we hold on to ourselves as part of this process. Because I think the, you know, as we go through grad school, you do sometimes feel like you're going through a transformative experience and some of it you keep and some of it you have to let go of. Um, but we also do have our fingers in lots of different communities. Um, and I think about people like Kieran and Zahira who are going through this process and not only do they have the community they came in with, but they're finding their way with other communities, being part of research projects like this um, and determining whether that's something you want to stay connected with going forward um, or, you know, just tipping your toe in, taking a, a taster of something and then moving on to other projects um, going forward. And so if we're talking about constellations of communities, then what do we mean by practice? So, well, practice is something we do to, to develop competence, right? And so I think that um, practice also has to do with, oh, now I'm going to get all over the map, but um, practice has to do with this idea of how we develop a craft or a skill. Um, and so if we are in the process of developing this skill uh, of scholarship and academic research or inquiry, then these are the people that are supporting us in that practice. Um, and I think that we have the practice makes perfect definition of practice, uh, but we also have the the practice as in our, our craft Um and I think that this is where, you know, we have to talk about what we do in higher education um, as not being something that we have um, perfected, but something that we continue to work at, uh, be that the intellectual pursuits and and science that you are engaging in, or um, if it is the, the critique of manuscripts, um, I think that there are always different ways to be thinking about these things. So practice to me has two definitions. Yeah, I'll allow it. Two definitions. I'll take it. Right. One of the one of the challenges with or opportunities with what we call in Canada knowledge mobilization, but has different terms all over the world, public scholarship, knowledge translation, making research ideas accessible. One of the key pieces is figuring out who who you want to work with, who you're speaking to, and how to distill those ideas into the pieces that are going to be most interesting, compelling, and useful to the people that you're talking to. Um, 
And for me, one of the connections between that and the way that we're talking about agency and communities of practice is learning how to pull out different dimensions of the work that you're doing to make it translate across contexts. Um, and that's as much about process as it is about outcomes. We're here talking about a study that is still very much evolving. The analysis is still continuing. We're thinking through how we're going to make this useful to the world with this podcast being one step. Um, but if you're thinking about everyone here, if you're thinking about yourselves as scholars who are in a group of people right now that, um, you know, Andy, tell me, does this group count as a community of practice? Of course. Okay. Yes, I think so. Because, you know, I know that as part of, of the process, we have met as a group a number of times to talk about the evolution and the iteration of our findings, um, but also talking through who would be interested in this. And so the outcomes are a distinct product of our community talking about this. Um, I know that Kieran and I have met a number of times to go through the interviews and talk about what are some of the pieces that are emerging and what are we looking for and what are we hearing in the data? Um, and then he's also been meeting with Jillian and Zahira to talk about the research or the data that they're looking at as well. And so to me, this is the perfect example of a community of practice because we have a group of people who bring very different skill sets, but are also learning from each other. Um, and no community is flat. All communities have these different um, levels of experience and practice and knowledge, but all of them come to a place together where they are contributing. Uh, and I think that that is, is hugely powerful when we start talking about, especially research with community partners, um, with organizations, and coming back to your idea of knowledge mobilization. Who is going to benefit from this? I think it's really easy when we start looking at research, say, around, you know, cancer research. It's really easy to see who is going to benefit from that kind of research. But when we talk about knowledge mobilization in the social sciences and humanities, we have to think really hard about who outside of the academy can benefit from that. Because if we don't think about that, then it becomes an echo chamber chamber inside the academy that that isn't really helping and supporting. But if we start to think about who can benefit from this, how can you know people outside um, the academy benefit from this idea of agency and of communities? Um, I think one of the best things is that they could start to perhaps see the university as a partner in their community where they may not have been partners before, or that we can start to look at other organizations to have as communities and, and partners with us. Um, and the more we are offering those as suggestions, especially to our graduate students, to our recent graduates, to the, the people that we know that might be looking at a career change or transition, then we keep those networks. We keep those threads, right? And this amazing web starts to develop of people connected to each other, not just because of where they work, but because they have really interesting interests that connect with each other. Um, and the more that we can look for where that knowledge is being generated and being shared, then I think we have opportunities um, to do so much more with it rather than you know, have this echo chamber um, in a particular department or library or wherever it is that those inf that information is being held. 
Zahira, what does agency look like for you in this project? Oh, that's a hard question, but I think, I mean, agency in general, I didn't know much about it before. And I kind of got to know through like um, Julianne because, you know, her whole work and now I'm working with her. And I think it's, for me, it's the idea that I am kind of like, I need to be the person who controls my, my course in a way. And I, you know, through through this project, thinking about like my academic journey and how I'm steering the course of like my ship basically and where I want it to go. Um, I need to take control of my actions. I need to put myself in positions where it allows me to be, you know, to take these opportunities that are presented to me and not just like, you know, sit back and be like, oh, like I want it to go a certain way and be flexible in that process. And I think agency plays a big role in that because I need to be an agent in my own learning journey. And I need to put myself in those uh, positions that allow me to grow and learn with other people, not just kind of have this intention and just stick to it. Nice. Jillian, tell us about this survey. How many people responded? Great question. Um, we had a total of 76 respondents, um, and that's the number, the complete number of, uh, of individuals who finished the survey from start to finish, um, which was uh, really, really lovely to see because um, at the end of the survey, we actually had two open answer, uh, open answer questions. And for any of you who've ever run a survey, <laughs> people usually skip those and you're just like, oh, okay, it's over, hit submit. Um, but in, in our particular sample, uh, all but one or two um, actually filled out those last, those last couple of questions. So um, me, the quantitative researcher, uh, you know, able to do all of this great, all these great numbers with um, the Likert questions. Um, we also had uh, a lovely um, thematic analysis that we could do on the on the two quali uh, qualitative questions. So what were those open text questions, Jillian? The first open text question was, um, what does it mean? What does being a scholar mean to you? Um, and the second question was, uh, in, um, is there anything else that you would like to tell us? Um, and that one is still under analysis at the moment because there was a lot that people really wanted to share. Um, and so that that's ongoing. Maybe that's podcast part two. Um, but the, the open-ended question about what does a scholar mean to you was absolutely fascinating. Um, we're talking paragraphs worth of information. And thematically, mm. um, there's some really uh, not surprising, I suppose, um, answers to, to that question, but um, really, really interesting responses. And they gener generally kind of uh, clustered around three themes that, that I labeled. So there was challenges uh, and struggles in academia, the pursuit of knowledge and intellectual curiosity, and the evolving perceptions of scholarship and the role of the academy. And mm. so um, there's some really fascinating um, nuances to that. 
With the responses to that question, what does being a scholar mean to you? What was the thing that surprised you most? Honestly, one of the things that did surprise me was a, that so many people answered that question, uh, just from a methodological standpoint, um, but that there was this really uh, significant number of people um, really spoke to this whole evolving scholar idea of scholarship. I, I was actually really happy, um, you know, despite um, some of the of the tone of some of the the responses, but that there was an evolving perception of that there, you know, that um, people were considering um, as being um, beyond the academy that their their identity as scholars was evolving and changing. And for me, that's that was um, very optimistic. So, Jillian, based on the data that you've gathered so far. What's the next step for the quantitative part of the research? Well, the, the next step is to really examine um, in more detail the role of some uh, individual differences uh, play in this whole idea of pro professional agency and the interaction between professional agency development um, and a community of practice. And so um, the elements of agency really involve um, uh, aspects of intentionality, um, self-efficacy, the ability to self-regulate, um, and in, in terms of reaching your goals. And so one of the things that, that we found in this particular population is that 26% of our respondents identified as having some kind of disability. We didn't ask them what disability they had or anything like that, but they identified as being disabled. Um, and then we had 13% uh, of our respondents identify as racialized. And so both of those identifying elements play a significant uh, role in how we talk about um, professional agency, development of pro professional agency in a community of practice. Um, and what this is beginning to tell me, and I'm still, you know, wrestling with these ideas and thinking about, well, what is this telling me? What is this telling us about um, the role of the, the importance of a community in and in developing professional agency for individuals who have who identify as racialized and um, and or have a disability, and I believe that what that that is um, much more important. Um, it's important for everyone, but it's ex extremely important for these individuals. That's what mm -hmm. that's what I think it's telling me. Um, but because we didn't ask that specific question, I don't want to overemphasize, but because it came out as significant in this population, um, in this sample, I think there is much more um, that we could investigate around that specifically. Mm -hmm. If I'm understanding you correctly, Jillian, you asked these questions about how people, how people identify in terms of race, in terms of ability. Um, and you've gotten these high level answers that seem to be um, indicating that there's more there, but the next step is to peel back the later layers and ask more specific questions about 
the connections between those experiences, agency, and community. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, that's exactly right. Is that we don't know, um, we can't say, you know, what exact role that that they do play, but there is um, a significant correlation. Um, so a, there is a significant, some kind of relationship there that we do need to discover, uh, do need to explore more. Thanks, Jillian. That's really, um, really interesting. Andy, would you please give us the shape of the qualitative side of the project? What did it look like? No problem. Um, I think that when when I sat down to put the protocol together for, for the interviews, um, I really was using two driving questions. How do people who have moved beyond or outside the academy um, understand or enact this idea of professional agency? And then how do they understand, navigate, or use the ideas of communities of practice? Um, and so those were the driving questions that um, I was asking, the, the big picture questions. Each of the interviews was a little bit different um, because I'm, I'm trying to do these as narrative appreciative interviews. So I'm wanting to hear stories from the participants. And again, uh, focusing on what are the positives or what are the things that they were able to, to take away. Um, and then I used those two questions as sort of the guides, not sort of, as the guides for the findings. Um, and when we started to talk about how people understand professional agency, it really comes down to this idea of feeling that they were directing their learning and then their life beyond the academy. Um, and how did they feel that they were making decisions or responding to external factors in a way that they felt that they were making those decisions. They were purposefully or consciously um, responding to, to some of those factors. Uh, and then when it comes to things like the communities, it really was this idea of these overlapping constellations of communities um, and how it was that they themselves were choosing to engage um, sometimes for a short period of time, sometimes very purposefully, um, or sometimes finding a sustained engagement with this diverse group of communities, um, be that an artistic community, an academic community, uh, a softball league, all of those things fell within this idea of communities of people that they were engaging with. Um, and so I, I, I thought a lot about uh, who is the self that comes to these kind of situations? Um, how have they used the skills, the dispositions, the things that they have learned as part of, of their degree training in order to make these purposeful decisions and purposefully engage with people? And so in these conversations with PhDs who had graduated and gone on to new and different pathways. Um, what were some of the things that you learned? I think there was two, two big things that I learned. First of all, when we say beyond the academy, um, it's a spectrum. It's not just rejecting the academy and moving away. I'm looking at the type of, of careers that people took on. There are people who are sort of para-academics um, that often work for a university or college or higher education institution and facilitate 
other people's research, PhD processes, all those sorts of things. And then there are people who are adjacent to the academy, um, often working with scholarly organizations, uh, you know, and doing work that is also around knowledge generation and knowledge mobilization. And it's a much smaller group of people who actually reject and actively work outside of the academy in a way that is not tangentially related to to the type of work that they had before. Um, and so I think there's this spectrum of work sort of moving away from the academy and that not everybody sort of actively rejects and turns away. Um, and the other big piece was really around the place of identity um, and how people see themselves as being part of their agency. Um, and I think about a number of the individuals that I talked to and even my own experience coming back to graduate work much later in life, you know, having had a career before or having other work before they returned to their PhD. Um, and the element of time and personal development and um, self-interest, uh, I think that are a huge part of how it is that they navigate this process. Because many of these people were saying, you know, it took me 10 years to get my degree. I'm totally happy with that because I had all sorts of amazing experiences. And now I know enough about myself and about the kind of work that's demanded in the academy to know that my personal happiness is more important than, as somebody put it, slogging away in a carol. So based on what you, you've been hearing in these early conversations in this work, is scholarship a job or an identity? <laughs> that is a fabulous question. Um, I think that scholarship with a small s, um, if we were to use that, is this idea of as I defined, you know, what is a scholar or who is a scholar? Um, scholarship is a disposition. It is an identity. It is an approach. It is how we choose to engage in this work. Um, I think that, you know, the being an academic is often associated with inside the academy, but being a scholar can be somebody who is outside the academy. <laughs> It was interesting, though, in one conversation with with um, one of the interviews, one of the interviews got caught up on the idea of me using that term. You know, how do you see yourself as a scholar? Because they did not see themselves as a scholar. They saw themselves as an artist and an artist, even though their art involved using methodologies, using inquiry, using research. That was not what they were engaged in. They were not doing scholarship. They were doing art. Um, and so that element of self-determination or self-definition, I think, is also a key part. And it goes back to this idea of what is your identity? How do you see yourself? Um, which I think is a lovely dovetail with some of the things that Jillian was finding um, in the survey is that identity is a huge part of this. And, and that identity as a scholar, in quotation marks, or an academic or a learned person is part of how people navigate this particular world. Mm. And so as you think about what you've learned so far and the next steps for, for these findings, what are the next steps of this research? 
the next steps for me, I think, are not as clear because I do think that this is something that those of us who have been this through this process probably go, yeah, okay, yeah, I see that. Um, and our own, you know, closeness to this particular time probably brings up some of those feelings. Um, but many of our colleagues who may be, you know, 15 years into an academic career and are mentoring graduate students may not be, may not remember those feelings quite as well, or maybe had, um, you know, a, a solo focus as they went straight from their undergraduate to their master's to their graduate degree. Um, so in some ways, I see the purpose or, or my own you know, work as a next step is to remind people of some of these experiences and reminding everybody that just because you have this degree or this, you know, you've gone through this process does not mean you're going to a singular place. Um, because I, I also then want graduate students to say, I don't have to be training towards this particular way. I can train and I can use these skills in a lot of different ways. Um, so I think, you know, there is an element of outreach with our colleagues and reminding them that, you know, not everybody who's going through this process is destined for an academic career, nor should they. You know, perhaps we we need to have that conversation earlier on in the process. Um, but then also reminding, as Zahira said in, in the interview so beautifully, she now has to be an agent of her own learning journey. Right. That we can't just, you know, as Kieran said, take the time, engage and be privileged in this moment and allow, you know, ourselves to wallow <laughs> or to to soak um, in the academic experience. But that part of that means that we have to be purposeful in where we're spending our time. And, you know, it's it's a beautiful privilege to be able to engage in the world of the mind during this terminal degree. However, I don't think that we can uh, rest and become lotus eaters um, and, and sit there and, and spend too much time without thinking about how can I use this? Uh, how can I use this experience to expand um, or to further my own goals? Um, and perhaps it's, you know, we find goals in lots of different places because we've had these opportunities. Um, and so it's that tension between spending time loving this world, but also remembering that we have to be able to use it at some point that it is fleeting and, and we'll have to engage in our next steps as part of our career process. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for taking the time for the interview and for, for this work. It's really been a pleasure to partner with you as it evolves and i'm looking forward to the next steps we hope you have enjoyed this episode of the hikma collective podcast i'm your host erica makalak founder of hikma the production of this episode was led by sofia van hees in collaboration with smangele madena eufemia valdasare i mazuda nicole markland and dashara green matthew tomkinson composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 hikma artist in residence this podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, the Information and Communications Technology Council, the Canada Digital Adoption Program, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio podcast. 
Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedem-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose land you're on. 